everybody. What's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. You can go to the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. You can read all my books for free online at BibleProphecyText.com. You can get a free 32 gigabyte uh, or something like that uh, download with all kinds of video, audio, and books and all kinds of Bible prophecy related material from me and other people at Bible Prophecy archive.com. So that's Bible prophecy talk, text, and archive.com. All right, today I want to talk about some Bible prophecy news-related items. The red heifer is what we'll start off with first, and then I want to go over some things about the Antichrist, uh, Messiah connection, and some interesting things that I think actually tie into some of this other stuff in the news as well. Um, so let's talk about the red heifer news story. This has been uh, um, gaining a lot of ground, basically for some background. In the book of Numbers, there is a ritual described in which a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came a yoke, would be uh, slaughtered and burned outside of the camp, and the ashes would then be used to dedicate the uh, uh, temple. And... The Mishnah, the rabbinic oral law, further describes that it needs to be, you know, two black hairs and validates the red heifer. It's got to be two years and, and a day old and uh, some other further requirements. And that those requirements certainly make it a much more rare thing to have occurred. And that is because cows are very rarely entirely red without any non-red hairs. Additionally, I think the hairs need to be all straight to confirm that it has never been yoked and some other things like this. So um, so the story is that five of these red heifers have been rabbinically confirmed in Texas and have been flown to Israel and received by the Temple Institute, which is an organization uh, of Jewish people dedicated to uh, preserving and producing those things which would be needed for the uh, temple sacrifice if a uh, third temple would ever be built. So uh, first, I guess I would say about this, this is something that if you've never heard this before and you've never been around Bible prophecy until recently, this is kind of one of those things that the Red Heifer stuff has been around forever. I mean, the Temple Institute itself, I think, uh, at least four other times that they, they've said they've had the red heifer and they put out these news stories and they say they've got them. They say the rabbis have confirmed it and then we don't hear anything else about it. So we presume that it was invalidated uh, later on. And that's an important thing to recognize with these cows. I mean, these are eight months old and so they need another 16 months before they can even be inspected. And my understanding is that's sort of a crucial time for them to to have found, you know, these hair uh, uh, blemishes or two black hairs or two white hairs or whatever it may be. So, I mean, I wouldn't exactly put too much stock in this if you've never heard this or been through this uh, uh, situation before. But I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, it can't be the case uh, or anything like that. But I would put it a little bit in perspective and say that, you know, the, the Temple Institute, they've built the golden menorah and they have all the priestly attire built and they keep it in their, you know, their temple Institute thing. Uh, if they did get these ashes and they sacrifice this thing outside the camp, I think it's on the Mount of Olives that they would do it. Um, then they, uh, they would just put those ashes next to the menorah or whatever, you know, it would just be another thing that they would have that would be ready for the temp the temple that, that it wouldn't, 
It wouldn't, there's, uh, to put it this way, there's a lot of reasons why Israel has not built a temple. And it wasn't because they didn't have a red cow. It was because it would start World War III for one. Um, you know, they can't do anything on the Temple Mount. They're going to need a protector. They're going to need somebody that's got their back in a world war in order to build a temple. The, the, a cow is not what's holding them back. Now, I understand that people see this as a sign from God that the end times are near, and certainly there's enough fervor out there um, that the end times are near, based as if you're a follower of this podcast, you know that I do not think many of those things are... Uh, are worth much. They just seem like, uh, hey, times are bad, things are weird. Uh, let's just say that's Bible prophecy. But, you know, I get it. This is uh, one of those things that is presumably very rare. So if it did happen, it would be something to, to think about. Um, but I do want to talk about this a little bit later because it will, it will tie in with the Messiah uh, expectations because uh, the, I think it was Maimonides in the, in, uh, said that he... Uh, says that the Messiah would be the one who um, sacrifices the 10th red heifer, which this one would be that red heifer. So you could look at it like this. I mean, messianic expectations in Israel would be really high if this was a red heifer. Red heifers are a big deal to Israel. So they would certainly see it as a sign that the Messiah is near. Obviously, you guys know that if a temple got built, it would be built by the Antichrist and for the Antichrist. It is, has nothing to do with God. It's certainly nothing to celebrate. In any case, let's, uh, let's move on from this. I do want to briefly talk about Rosh Hashanah because it is, I think, happening in a few days. I should look that up. And I did a podcast recently that I'm just going to point you to called uh, The Last Trump, The Silver Trumpets and the Accordion Theory, in which I go over the case that Rosh Hashanah is not what we're looking for with regard to the rapture. Uh, when Paul speaks of the trump in association with the rapture, he is talking about the two silver trumpets of Numbers 10. He is not referring to Rosh Hashanah or the ram's horns. It is, um, you know, it's a call for the gathering of the assembly and for God to go to war against their adversaries. That's why Paul was referencing it in relationship to the day of the Lord, because that's what the minor prophets we're referring to when they spoke of the trumpet in association with the day of the Lord it has nothing whatsoever to do with Rosh Hashanah. Um, I also would, uh, uh, in that podcast, go over that if the rapture was on Rosh Hashanah, it would violate the pattern fulfillment of the feasts because if the day of atonement um, is supposed to be the end of the 70th week of Daniel, because that's, you know, 70 weeks are determined for your people to bringing in, you know, uh, to prophecy and everlasting righteousness. Basically, the end of the Jewish completion concept is at the end of the 70 weeks period, essentially at the end of the seven-year period. If that's the Day of Atonement, then the pattern fulfillment means that Rosh Hashanah must occur 21 days before that. Because the first feasts, which started with the Passover, with the crucifixion, and then 50 days later, Pentecost happened, those occurred on the actual days within a 50-day time period, then we would expect that pattern fulfillment to be true in, with the fulfillment of the uh, fall feast as well. Um, and I'm not saying that the, that the rapture will be 21 days before the end of the 70th week. As I said, I don't think that Rosh Hashanah has anything to do with the rapture whatsoever. It's just uh, um, a, a misnomer. And uh, furthermore, I would say that the rapture must occur at least five months before the end of the 70th week because of the fifth trumpet, which says that there are five months of the uh, that particular plague 
So the rapture must occur at least five months before the end of the 70th week, but probably much longer before the end of the 70th week. In any case, check out that podcast, The Last Trump and the Silver Trumpets and The Accordion Theory, which is a recent podcast at BibleProphecyTalk.com for the full sort of treatment on the Rosh Hashanah Silver Trumpets concept. For the balance of the podcast, I wanted to uh, go over some argumentation about the idea that the Antichrist will present himself as a Messiah, um, that he is going to pretend to be fulfilling the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, places like Zephaniah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the Psalms and Zechariah and Micah. You know, it's really all over the Old Testament, these things that the Messiah will do in mostly in the kingdom age, what we would call the millennium uh, as Christians. There is a time period where there's a lot of information there. A lot of Christians don't even know that there are that many prophecies or these specific prophecies about the millennium, or they don't even believe that there's a millennium. They're all millennial. So there's very low information with a lot of Christians about what the Messiah is prophesied to do. And these are things that Jesus, of course, will do in his second coming, but uh, most of which he hasn't done yet, which is sort of the Jewish argument about why they think Jesus wasn't the Messiah, because they will say, well, he didn't rule the world. He didn't make Jerusalem the capital city of the world and all these other things that he hasn't done yet, but we know that he will do. So the Antichrist will do those things. And I think the interesting thing is that if you take the, the body of what the Bible has decided or God has decided to give us in the Bible about the Antichrist, you know, there's sort of odd things that, has, that it has decided to tell us about the Antichrist deeds and actions and, and all these things. And they are specifically the things that are fulfilling specific prophecies. I'll go over what I mean about that in a minute. So I want to go over the, an infographic that I made that I made based off of uh, me thinking about the debate that I did with Joel Richardson. So Joel Richardson is the guy that believes that the, uh, the Islamic Antichrist theory, which I also wrote a book called The Islamic Antichrist Debunked, uh, which I think is one of my best books, but uh, it's not well rated, I think, because so many people like the Islamic Antichrist theory, though I would say it is falling out of favor, especially with the rise of the uh, New World Order. Uh, Islam is looking a lot less scary than it did after 9-11, but... Um, in any case, in that debate, I was kind of interested in retrospect about what I sort of led with, which was the argument that um, I'm going to present here in, in sort of a, a, a quicker form, um, which is the actions and prophecies of the Messiah in the Bible compared to those of the Antichrist. And so I want to go over this, and then I want to go over an article from uh, Shabbat.org. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it is a sort of conservative, if, I, if I'm understanding it right, a conservative uh, a Jewish theology website about what their expectations of the Messiah are. Because I think as Christians, we, we tend to forget what they're looking for. And I think in combination with the argumentation that I'm going to make here, it hopefully should make some people think about this. And, you know, this idea that the Antichrist will present himself as a Messiah is the oldest view of, of the church. You can read the early church. This is what they thought would happen, that the Antichrist would be a false Messiah, that he would pretend to be a Messiah and he would be accepted by the Jews, that the world, including many Christians, would be drawn into that, that they would see him as the Messiah, that with the, the false teachings of the prophet, the, who would probably claim to be Elijah, because that's a forerunner of the Messiah, and I'm, I'm certain that's what the false prophet will do based on the, the miracles he's supposed to do, calling down fire from heaven, etc. 
but that's another story. So, um, so it's the early church. I have been seeing it gain popularity in the scholarly world. J. Paul Tanner's recent, uh, uh, I think the, the best commentary on the book of Daniel, uh, from Dr. Tanner is, uh, is presents this, uh, theory, uh, very cogently. Um, and I do think, I mean, I had a, maybe a small role in that. I know, uh, t uh Dr. Tanner quoted, uh, uh, my book, Mystery Babylon in his paper on the subject of Mystery Babylon. So I'm hoping that I made some small contribution to his, uh, thought process on that. But, you know, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day and the, they, they were pre-tribbers as most uh, of these, um, prophecy podcasts are, and they just casually referred to how the Antichrist would present himself as a Messiah with the one distinction. I think this is important to, to say at the outset. They'll say, yes, he's going to pretend to be the Messiah and he's going to be accepted as the Messiah by the Jews. But then at the midpoint, at the abomination of desolation, that's when he sort of takes off the mask and reveals he's just a bad guy. Hey, everybody, I'm just a bad guy. You need to worship me now, which I would say is definitely not the picture that uh, I understand that what to be happening there. I, I understand that to be sort of the culmination of his messianic claims, as we'll see as we go through this. Um, so let me just start off. This is basically a two-columned list. On one side, I have what it says about the Messiah, and the other side, I have what it says about the Antichrist. You can see this uh, graph and copy it and share it or whatever. I will put it on the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com, in association with this episode, which will be out probably 920 2022. So the first one, uh, the Messiah is prophesied to rule the world. And I, I don't know if I should go over all these references. I think it should be fairly quick, but I do want to get it in, uh, in some kind of form, an audio form. So forgive me. I'll try to be quick. The Messiah will rule the world. Psalm 21, 8 through 9. Psalm 89, 23. Psalm 110, 5 through 6. Isaiah 30, 14. Isaiah 60, 12. Jeremiah 19, 11. Daniel 2, 44. Matthew 21, 44. Revelation 2, 26 through 27. And Revelation 12, 5. So the Messiah will definitely rule the world. You know, rod of iron in the millennium. The Messiah is going to physically rule the world. Okay. Well, the Antichrist will also rule the world. Daniel 7, 23, Revelation 13, 7 through 8, Revelation 16 through 17, uh, rather Revelation 13, 16 through 17, and Revelation 17, verse 15. That one's an easy one, okay? They're both going to rule the world. Eh, big deal. Okay, and the next one, the Messiah is prophesied to make Jerusalem the capital city of the world. There are a lot of places I think I could have gone with this, this reference, but I chose Isaiah 21, 1 through 4, since it makes it explicit that Jerusalem will be the capital city of the world in the millennium. The Antichrist is going to make Jerusalem the capital city of the world. Daniel 11, 45, Matthew 24, 15 through 28, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, and Revelation 11, 8 compared with Revelation 17, 18. So that last one is important. You've got to sort of compare them to understand uh, that, uh, that Jerusalem is in view there. Okay, next the Messiah is prophesied to start a form of temple sacrifice in the millennium. Now, we know that sacrifices are not necessary, but we're also told that some kind of sacrifices will start up again in the millennium with Jesus. And I know a lot of people don't like that, but here are a lot of references in case you want to prove it. Ezekiel 43, 13, 27. Ezekiel 45, 15, uh, through 20, Isaiah 56, 7, Isaiah 66, 20 through 23, Jeremiah 33, 18, Zechariah 14, 16 through 21, and Malachi 3, 3 through 4. 
a form of temple sacrifice, will begin again in the Messianic kingdom. That is a prophecy about the Messiah. Well, we know from uh, the Bible that the Antichrist will start a form of temple sacrifice. Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 11, 38, and Revelation 18, 11 through 14. Uh, 18, 11 through 14 is a little vague. I'll give you that. It's just uh, the items that are brought to Mystery Babylon are specifically uh, referenced as temporal sacrifice items. You can cross-reference that. I mentioned that in my book, Mystery Babylon. Another one, this is definitely one people don't think about a lot if they're not really steeped into sort of the Old Testament. The Messiah is prophesied to start a worldwide pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So the nations of the world will have to go up year by year to worship Jesus in the temple, okay? A pilgrimage. They've got to walk to Jerusalem to worship Jesus. In a real world, the nations have to do that. Isaiah 60, 3 through 22, Isaiah 66, 17 through 23, Isaiah 66, 18, oh wait, Isaiah 18, 7, Zechariah 14, 16 through 18. The Antichrist will start a worldwide pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Revelation 13, 12, Revelation 18, 1 through 3, and Revelation 18, 11 through 4. The Messiah is prophesied to sit in the temple to receive worship. This is a big one because everybody knows that the Antichrist sits in the temple to receive worship, but they see it as a bad thing. They see him like going in there knocking over all the menorahs and saying, I hate this stuff. But I'm telling you, that's the exact opposite. It's going to be an abomination, but not because he's knocking over a menorah. He, it's going to be an abomination because he's not God. He's not Jesus. He's not the Messiah. And he's sitting in the temple usurping the authority of Christ. That's why it's an abomination. Anyway, so the Messiah obviously will do this uh, in the millennium. Ezekiel 43, 6 through 9. Isaiah 18, verse 7. Isaiah 66, 23. The Antichrist will do this, Daniel 11, 31, Daniel 12, 11, Matthew 24, 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 5. Now we get into some really, really uh, deep cuts with Messianic prophecies. The Messiah will defeat and incorporate Assyria and Egypt. This is one of the things that really makes me think, you know, the information that the God decided to give us about the Antichrist was specifically to show this, to, to, to miss this is, is big. So this is a big thing with the messianic prophecies. He is going to defeat these, these historic enemies of Israel, and they're going to become part of greater Israel. Assyria and Egypt will become, they were originally from the Euphrates to the Nile, uh, which is Assyria and Egypt, were part of the land that was given to Abraham. And the Messiah is going to defeat them, and they are then going to become a part of uh, uh the, the millennium, which is why I think that they don't show up in the Gog Magog thing because they're not, because they're part of greater Israel. You can draw the border of greater Israel and see the Gog Magog enemies are on the outside of that, but that's another story. So, uh, Isaiah eleven sixteen talks about this, Assyria, Egypt, Messianic destruction and incorporation, Isaiah 19, 23 through 25, Isaiah 27, 12 through 13, Micah 7, 11 through 12, Zechariah 14, 18 through 19. So you see, it's not a minor, uh, uh thing. And the, the defeat and incorporation of Assyria and Egypt is also explicitly said in, uh, about the Antichrist in Daniel 11, 40 through 45, which details these specific wars with Assyria and Egypt. Moving on, he will defeat the coastlands, particularly Jordan and Ethiopia. This is a prophecy in Zephaniah 2, 5 through 12, 
Isaiah 11, 10 through 14. So the coastlands, when I say that, sort of shorthand for what we would think of as the Palestinians today, the, the, the West, or, or you know, uh, the, the people on the coast of Israel, which for time immemorial basically have been the Philistines or, or what have you. So this, uh, and when I say Jordan and Ethiopia, that's sort of code for Moab, um, and, and, and uh, uh, Edom, these, these also historic enemies in the millennium, just before the millennium, actually, probably during the day of the Lord, the, 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 the real Messiah, Jesus, will physically take these back and will clear them out of the enemies in preparation for uh, the millennial kingdom. So this is said in Zephaniah 2, 5 through 12, and Isaiah 11, 10 through 14. And this is said to... Wait, uh, occur with the Antichrist, he will defeat the coastlands in Jordan and Ethiopia and Daniel 11, 40 through 45. Although I should say that he is unable to, uh, to do this completely. It says that uh, some of them, the pr prominent people of Ammon, for example, will escape from his hands. And I always like that because it seems like it's a, it's a way to show that the Antichrist isn't really the Messiah. You know, he's almost doing it, but he's not quite. He's not going to really be able to do all this stuff. He's going to be trying, but there's going to be signs for people who are looking that, hey, that he's not really fulfilling the scriptures. He didn't get Ammon, for example. Um, so that's a big one. This is a huge one. He will, will die and resurrect from the dead. Now, obviously, this did not occur in the millennium. This occurred in his first uh, coming, as far as the Messiah, but it was prophesied in, in Psalm 16, 10 through 22, Isaiah 53, 10 through 11, and it's very well testified that the Antichrist will die and resurrect from the dead. Daniel 11, 45 through 12, 1. If you follow that thread through the end of uh, Daniel 11 and the beginning of 12, 1, then that's in the logical conclusion that he resurrected from the dead, which uh, interestingly is also what the Jewish people will do, or rather Jewish people believe that that's talking about a resurrection. Of course, they see it as the Messiah and not the Antichrist, but that's another story. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12, Revelation 13, 3 through 4, Revelation 13, 12, Revelation 13, 14, Revelation 17, 8 and 11 all say that the Antichrist will die and resurrect from the dead. If you need to, you can believe that the, he just pretends to die and resurrect from the dead. I actually don't think so. I think he really does die and he really does resurrect from the dead. I think that is the strong delusion that God sends so that people will believe the lie which Paul uh, makes, I think, clear in 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, the Messiah will start a covenant. Jeremiah 31, uh, 27 through 31. Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. And of course, the Antichrist will start a covenant. In Daniel 9, 27, I know how Lindsay has told everybody it's a peace agreement, but what it is, is a covenant. And what it does is start the sacrifices. And what it almost certainly will be is the ability for them to build the temple and therefore start the uh, Mosaic Covenant sacrifices again, there, uh, uh, thereby starting their religion again. Uh, the sea merchants will bring him silver and gold. I just kind of threw this one in here just because it's an interesting one. Sea merchants will bring him silver and gold. Does that say that up at the Messiah? Yes, in the millennium, sea merchants will bring him silver and gold. Isaiah 60 verse 9. And in Revelation 18, 11 through 17, sea merchants will bring the Antichrist silver and gold. That's why everybody gets rich in Mystery Babylon, because there is a lot going on in Jerusalem in the last days. They've got a temple. They've got people having to go there to serve this false Messiah. The, uh, you know, if, you've, if, if you don't know it, uh, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem is the harlot. Um, 
that is described in Revelation 17, 18. I, I love Jerusalem. I love the Jewish people. But in the last days, they will believe that the Antichrist is their Messiah. It says that the world is made drunk by the fierceness of her fornication. She believes, as Revelation 18 says, has found her husband and her king, and the world is intoxicated by it. The world believes that she has found her husband and king, and they believe also it's the Messiah. And so this pilgrimage system will, will occur. Uh, the merchants will get rich because everybody's got to go there to offer the Antichrist silver and gold, which is, Dan which is what Daniel tells us that he wants and what uh, Revelation says that he wants and as a part of his sacrifice to worship the image of the beast or, or to be killed by it. So you might say they have in some incentive to worship him in that regard. Anyway, so that's uh, put into a, a little infographic. It's a lot of information, obviously. So I tried to condense it and uh, you can see that there on the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. All right, so the other thing I wanted to do in this podcast is talk about this article from Shabbat.org. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's C-H-A-B-A-D.org. It's called the article, What is the Jewish Belief About the Mashiach or Messiah? And the uh, this website, as far as I can tell, is a fairly conservative Jewish website. So it's not like a, you know, how in Christianity we have a liberal Christianity where they don't really even believe the Bible is true. There's the same thing that uh, happens in, in Jewish theology where they might say like the Messiah is you and the Messiah is me. And they don't really even believe in a fulfillment of the scriptures. But um, it seems that these people at Shabbat.org do. And so that's why I am choosing it as a representation of the Jewish belief about the Messiah. And so let's just skip around here. There's a paragraph called, What is the Belief in the Mashiach? And uh, it says, One of the principles of Jewish faith enumerated by Maimonides is that one day there will arise a dynamic Jewish leader, a direct descendant of the Davidic dynasty, who will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and gather Jews from all over the world and bring them back to the land of Israel. All nations of the world will recognize Mashiach to be a world leader and will accept his dominion. In the messianic era, there will, there will be world peace, no more wars nor famine, and in general, a high standard of living. All mankind will worship one God and live a more spiritual and moral way of life. Skipping around, it says, uh, he will inspire all people to strive for good. He will transform a seemingly utopian dream into a reality. He will be recognized as a man of God with greater leadership qualities than even Moses. Our prophets speak of the advent of a human leader of a magnitude that the world has not yet experienced. His unique example and leadership will inspire mankind to change direction. Uh, paragraph, what sort of leader will the Mashiach be? Mashiach will be a man who possesses extraordinary qualities. He will be proficient in both written and oral Torah traditions. He will incessantly campaign for Torah observance among Jews and observance of the seven universal Noahide laws by non-Jews. He will be scrupulous, scrupulously observant and encourage the highest standards from others. He will defend religious principles and repair breaches in their observance. Above all, Mashiach will be heralded, heralded as a true Jewish king, a person who leads the way in service of God, totally humble yet enormously inspiring. And I should say that to a certain extent, this is a little milk toast. They're not saying some of the, the big stuff. I would I should say that that they're clear here that he is not God. They don't think that he is God. Um, and that's something I, I mentioned in the book that though current is uh, Jewish tradition 
uh, does not hold that the Messiah is God, I do think that the false prophet will convince them that the Messiah is supposed to be God and is supposed to be worshiped. Right now, uh, the average Jewish person would say the Messiah isn't God, but we know that you can prove from the Old Testament that the Messiah will be God in a lot of different ways. So anyway, um, that is a sticking point that they would have. Uh, continuing to some of the interesting parts here, could Mashiach come at any time in any generation? Any potential Mashiach must be a direct descendant of King David, as well as an erudite in Torah learning. It should be noted that many people living today can trace their lineage back to King David, the chief rabbi of Prague in the late 16th century, Rabbi Yehuda Loel, uh, the Maharal, had a family tree that traced him back to the Davidic dynasty. Consequently, any direct descendant of that guy is a Davidic descendant. Maimonides, a great Jewish philosopher and codifier of the 12th century rules, uh, said that if we recognize a human being who possesses the superlative qualities ascribed to the Mashiach, we may presume that he is the potential Mashiach. This is an interesting line right here. If the individual actually succeeds in rebuilding the temple and gathering the exiles, then he is Mashiach. I quoted in my book, False Christ, a similar rabbi who basically, I think the article was, was, will the real Messiah please stand up? And it basically comes to the conclusion that they'll mention several times in this article that if he builds the temple, he's the Messiah, period. There's no reason to think about it. He must be from the line of David. It must all be true. If a person builds the temple, he's the Messiah. That's kind of what I'm trying to, the main thing I'm trying to say here is that, that, that Jewish belief is basically that simple. I, I tweeted out, you know, with a bar this low, I could see this uh, causing some problems in the future based on what we know as Christians will, will happen in the end times. Um, I mean, if, even if you don't think that uh, the Messiah, the, the Antichrist will be perceived as the, as the Messiah, you, you should at least be like, wow, you know, based on current Jewish belief about what they think about a rebuilt temple, and if the Antichrist is the one that builds that temple, I mean, how are they not going to see him as Messiah? I mean, that's specifically what Maimonides said. But anyway, continuing, what exactly will happen when Mashiach comes? Blah, blah, blah. The Mashiach will first rebuild the temple and then gather the uh, in the exiles. It's interesting, by the way. I, again, I thought about writing an article about how 1948 wasn't the ingathering of Ezekiel, uh, the night visions in Ezekiel. It can't be um, because those night visions, those the ingathering in about the rebuilding of the waste places and all this stuff that Ezekiel talks about, it's so connected to the Messianic age. You can't just say, well, it happened in 1948, but uh, for some reason they didn't have the Messiah or the Messianic age. And it's interesting to see that the Jews don't believe that 1948 was a fulfillment of the ingathering. Um, I think that's a, a fantastic argument to say that it probably isn't. But they're, they're saying that rebuilding the temple and the gathering of the exiles, which the reason that they put gathering of the exiles with such high importance is because of the way that it speaks of the ingathering so consistently uh, in the prophets. I mean, it is a very messianic situation. Um, and the temple will be a focus of divine worship. Uh, da, 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 da. The Sanhedrin, a Supreme Jewish law court of 71 sages, will be reestablished and will decide on all matters of law. At this time, all Jews will return to full Torah observance and practice. Will miracles happen? Uh, quoting, skipping down here, God himself will rebuild some, basically, some, according to some traditions, God himself will rebuild the third temple. According to others, it will be rebuilt by Mashiach. Still others suggest a combination of the two op opinions. Some suggest that there will be two distinct periods in the Messianic era. 
first a non-miraculous period leading into a second miraculous period. I, I think this is pretty fascinating because the way, and you can see my uh, uh, video about the Bible, uh, Bible prophecy timeline in which my main thing is to sort of kind of give a picture of what's supposed to be happening in that seven-year period because the, the first half of the seven-year period, I believe it starts with the Antichrist allowing for the temple to be rebuilt and sacrifices to start. Uh, I believe that before that even happened, he has already established himself uh, to some degree with military might. They believe that if this guy is protecting them from the inevitable onslaught of their enemies, particularly at that time, the 10 kings, which will have been existing beforehand, and those that are close to Israel, which I would argue have to have be controlling Israel at that point. He is a protector, which will allow them to build the temple, and certainly messianic expectations will be high. But those wars in Daniel 11, 40 through 45 take place during that first half. You just heard before that they don't believe that there will be wars in the messianic age. But they do believe, as we're about to see in a minute, wars will happen in the lead up to it. The Gog-Magog war, uh, the wars of, uh, of Isaiah 11, lots of wars before the Messianic age, but no wars when it starts. So I think you can clearly show Daniel 11, uh, 45, end of Daniel 11, he comes to his end. Daniel uh, 12, 1, with no stop in the narrative, he raises from the dead, He the, the midpoint of the tribulation starts, which I believe is what happens. That's why he sits in the temple declaring himself to be God, because he because he just got done finishing with the, the, the thing. He did the thing. He conquered Israel's enemies. He established uh, the, the uh, Assyria and Egypt have been conquered specifically. Isaiah 11 in their eyes has been fulfilled. Gog Magog in their eyes has been fulfilled. But then he comes, he dies and he comes back to life. And that's when he sits in the temple that he built three and a half years earlier, declaring himself to be God. And they begin the Messianic age, which includes the worshiping of the Messiah and the temple and the bringing the goods and all that stuff. So the, the, the mystery Babylon doesn't even get started until the midpoint, until he raises from the dead. And, and the, the whole raising from the dead thing in Daniel is not my idea. That's something that's in the Jewish tradition. That, that's one of the reasons they think there'll be two messiahs, the Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. They believe ben Joseph is the guy who does all these wars and that he's killed just before the beginning of the Messianic age. And then this other messiah, Messiah ben David, comes and resurrects him from the dead. And then they start the Messianic age. So it's, it's really, really interesting when you think of it like that. But I was going back to this, that he thinks that, that, that there's a period, they say a, a non-miraculous period and then a miraculous period like split in two. And I, I think you could look at it like that. If the raising from the dead, which I believe is the strong delusion, why does God do it? He does it so that they will believe the lie. He, 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 he allows this to happen so it can all kick off. This great lie can now be believed. This miracle period now has begun because they just saw a guy raised from the dead, a guy that should have been dead by all rights and everybody, and yet he's not. Uh, yeah, so that guy's a special guy, right? And that's when this whole thing kicks off. Okay, moving on to what will become of the world as we know it. Initially, there will be no change in the world order other than its readiness to accept a messianic rule. All the nations of the world will strive to create a new world order in which there will be no more 
Wars or conflicts, jealousy, hatred, greed, and political strife of the negative kind will disappear and all human beings will strive only for goodness, kindness, and peace. In the Messianic era, there will be great advances in technology allowing high standards of living. Food will be plentiful and cheap. However, the focus of human aspirations will be the pursuit of the knowledge of God. People will become less materialistic and more spiritual. I think this is interesting because it's kind of like the utopian dream, right? Um, you know, it's all going to be great now, but what does the Bible tell us? The Bible says that's when the greatest persecution of all time starts. So I mentioned in the book, False Christ, that there's a, a Jewish tradition about this, you know, and it's not something they speak of openly very much, but they understand that when the Messi uh, Messianic age starts, the world isn't going to be ready for it. There's going to be some people in the world that aren't going to like it. And so they actually see what they call an extirpation, a rooting out of the people that won't go along with it, a Messianic sort of cleansing of the world, you might say. And that's what, uh, of course, uh, that's why I think it's so interesting that it's so associated with this obvious, in this case, and it's a true thing, uh, and it's real, you know, the millennium really will, will be like this, but this is a clear utopian dream that will be sold only if they can root out the people that won't believe it. And that's why I look at, a lot of people see that uh, antichrist persecution of Christians during, after the midpoint to be you know, like a part of the wrath of God or something, which is complete nonsense. How is the Antichrist persecuting Christians the wrath of God? The people that are doing great in that scenario or the people that are worshiping the Antichrist, they're marrying, giving in a marriage. Everything's going just fine. They thought they found their king. They're, they're on their way to utopia. The only people that aren't doing good are the people that aren't taking the mark, that aren't worshiping this guy that just sat down in the temple. That's who it's bad for. That is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God doesn't start until the day of the Lord starts. Um, which will be some unknown time after the midpoint. We don't know when, we do know it will be after the midpoint. Uh, that's the absolute clear reading of Matthew 24, but when it happens, nobody knows. Okay, so this next one is interesting. Where, what are the birth pains of Mashiach's rival? They talk about Talmud, the tradition, that there a great war takes place called the War of Gog Magog, and that there's much speculation as to the precise timing of this war in relation to Mashiach's arrival. There is a tradition that Elijah the prophet will come to the world and announce the imminent arrival of Mashiach. However, according to other opinions, Mashiach may arrive unannounced. Elijah would then arrive to assist in the peace process. Some suggest that if Mashiach arrives in his predestined time, then uh, Elijah will announce his arrival. But if Mashiach comes suddenly, then Elijah will appear after Mashiach has come. Now, what do you notice about this? That Elijah is going to be a part of this. They don't know exactly when he comes or how he's going to be related to it, but Elijah has to be there. And of course, we know from Malachi and other places that the, 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 that John the Baptist was in a sense Elijah, but also Elijah really is going to show up as one of the two witnesses and he's going to precede the, the, the real Messiah, Jesus's return. But there is no possibility of a man being, uh, pretending to be the Messiah if he doesn't have an Elijah. And that's what the false prophet is. It seems so obvious that that's what's happening. He's calling down fire from heaven. He's doing the exact, uh, um, uh, 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 miracles of Elijah, which is interesting that the other person on the earth at the same time, the two, one of the two witnesses is also doing the same thing. I think of it as dueling Elijah's on one fake and one real one on the earth at that time. Last line I'll read. One of the principles of Jewish faith is the belief in the resurrection of the dead, according to the Zohar and early Kabbalistic texts. The resurrection will take place 40 years after the arrival of Mashiach. Okay, this is interesting. Of course, um, you know, a conservative Jew would believe in the resurrection of the dead. And 
They say, according to some kind of tradition, it takes place 40 years after the arrival of Mashiach. And I think this is interesting because it might give a reason for why the rapture hasn't happened yet. Because no matter which way you look at it, you're not going to be able to fake a rapture. And I believe that I believe this takes place after a while. I think that there's a lot less knowledge of the Bible when this happens. I think there's no internet and it's been long gone and people are not the same as we are now. Uh, but and, and I doubt pre-tribulationalism will survive much of the persecution of the Ten Kings. And I think it will be long gone uh, after people are actually persecuted. But so there will be a re-evaluating of what the rapture means among those sort of Christians who sort of had that to the degree that they're still here. And I think that that's, this is probably a version of what they're going to be sold on. And this is, in other words, this is probably what the false prophet's going to teach them about the, the rapture in the midst of this. Because the whole point of this, if the Antichrist and Satan are going to pull this off, they need to have a fake end times. Do you see? That the, if, he's gonna, if, the, if the Antichrist is going to pretend to be the Messiah, he's got to have a fake Gog-Magog war. You know, he's got to have a fake uh, enemy to beat. That's the whole point of my, uh, the Antichrist will save us from the New World Order. And that's why this is so scary, because I can't imagine the, the prophecy world as it stands. I mean, I, I grieve when I listen to people teach on prophecy, because all their teaching is... Eh, if you've been listening to this for a long time, you probably know what I mean, but I won't go into it for fear that I would sound like I know it all. And I don't, and I hope that I don't come across like that. Um, I want to try to be humble with this, but I think that there's certain things that are just... Anyway, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. Thank you for paying attention. If you made it this far, you can go to the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com, BibleProphecyText.com for the books, and BibleProphecyArchive.com for the free download of the audio video book file, which we curated a bunch of prophecy stuff that would hopefully make it uh, if the internet gets uh, shut down or however that works, that there will be something like that to, uh, to go on for many years to come. All right, so thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Bye.